Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He shall overcome. We shall overcome. I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Well, I also want to share a word of welcome with you today uh, to those here at our 930 Cornerstone service, those attending the Well and the Well Cafe this morning. Uh, great to be with you. If we have not met, my name is David. I serve as a senior pastor here and thrilled to be able to share with you today. As, as we begin today's message, I know that many are aware uh, that 50 years ago this past Wednesday, our world lost one of the most significant leaders of the 20th century. Our nation lost an American hero. It was in 1955 during the Montgomery bus boycott when a young Baptist minister began his work advocating for civil rights. In 1957, he became the first president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization that as it grew would eventually propel this young pastor into becoming the most visible and respected spokesperson uh, for the movement for civil rights. It was on August 28, 1963, and his address to over 250,000 who were participating in the March on Washington when his most well-known words were shared as he spoke about his dream for what America might one day be. The following year, 1964, he received the Nobel Peace Prize for his work, in particular his ongoing conviction that change could only happen through nonviolent activism. In 1965, he worked with others to organize a march along the 54-mile highway from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, to protest systemic racism that denied African Americans their constitutional right to vote. The year after that, he went north to Chicago to protest segregated housing, a campaign that was met with resistance that he and other members of the SCLC described as some of the strongest and most hateful that they had ever experienced before. In 1967, he sparked even more significant controversy when he spoke out against the Vietnam War, disappointing some of his own defenders 
and loyal allies, including the sitting president, Lyndon Johnson, who had signed the Civil Rights Act into law just three years earlier in 1964. The first months of 1968 found him working alongside others with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference on what was to be called the Poor People's Campaign, a movement to advocate for those most easily forgotten and most desperately in need in our nation. And it was on April 4th of that year when the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was tragically cut short when he was struck by an assassin's bullet as he stood on the second floor balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. And when Dr. King died, he was 39 years old. It was the day before that, April 3rd, when he spoke those words that you just heard. Like anybody, he said, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. It would be 15 years before the legacy of Dr. King's work would be officially recognized by our nation in 1983 when President Ronald Reagan created the January holiday that we mark each year today. Some might be surprised it took 15 years, but what may also boggle your mind is to consider that that span of time was actually longer than the number of years that it took him to create the legacy that we remember and that we pause to honor and to be challenged by again today. Some of y'all heard me share before a conversation I had with my daughter uh, after school. She was first or second grade at the time. Uh, uh, She came home uh, excited to tell her dad something. She'd learned something at school that she wanted to to tell me about. And uh, in in school, they were talking about the holiday that was coming up the next week. And so she heard all about Martin Luther King and and his life. And and of all the things that uh, that the teacher had told her about Martin Luther King, the thing that she wanted to come home and share with me, she wanted to make sure that I knew uh, was that uh, she came home, she said, Daddy, did you know that Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor just like you? It was one of those moments where I had no idea what to say. In my mind, I was thinking, oh, I hope that's true. I hope that there is something in me that someone could see as similar to what lived in him. And so today, what I want to invite you to do, again, as we as a nation mark the 50th anniversary of of his passing, I want to invite you to to press pause with me. We're going to do something a little bit different. You know where we have come from uh, as we've celebrated Easter together. If you were here at the beginning of the service, you know a little bit about where we're going as we begin a series next week that has incredible importance for our church and for our future. I hope you'll be invested in everything that we're doing in these next four weeks. What I want to invite you to do today is is to simply pause with me. And what I want to share with you are some of my own reflections, uh, having several months knowing that this date was coming and that this was something that I wanted to to share with you. I want to share with you some observations, some reflections in my own life about what the life of, uh, of Dr. King, his life and his faith lived out in his time, how it might challenge us in the life and the faith that we are living out in our own time. 
And I want you to hear all of these reflections uh, first as reflections that begin with me and my life, of my life of living as a pastor. What is the life of this pastor? Uh, how does it influence and change and challenge the life of, of me as a pastor? But also I want you to hear them uh, as reflections uh, from one who at a point in his life said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. And have thought about what does that mean? What does that mean when we think about the, 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 the life and the faith that we live out uh, in our time? So out of the ridiculous world that we live in, could you set that aside for just a moment? I, I want to invite you to forget about the article that you read yesterday, the thing that you saw on Facebook, to, to simply pause and to think about the life of one who is celebrated because of his contribution to a nation, but, but also in that contribution did it as a out of his devotion to his faith and his his life with Christ so here's the first thing I want to share with you as we think about Dr. King's life and what we learn from him and his life that might challenge us in our life and in our faith and that is that there is no such thing as private faith there's no such thing as private faith some of you know that this afternoon we're going to have what is, for me, one of my favorite services of the entire year, our confirmation commitment service. All of the students who throughout the spring uh, have been preparing for this, today at 3 o'clock they'll come to this altar, they'll profess their faith in Christ, they'll become full members of the church, uh, they, they will be all dressed up nice and neat, the, uh, the, they'll be looking as good as they ever do. I mean, they're much better than they did yesterday when they were down at their, uh, their retreat. It'll be a great day of celebration. Celebration as they, as they make that commitment. I got to go down there yesterday because what we always do is for any of the students who have not been baptized before and want to be baptized by immersion, we do that at the lake at, in Glen Rose at, at our conference camp, which that's, you know, that's no big deal. That's what you do. It's April. What could go wrong, right? <laughs> Well, it was 35 degrees yesterday. That was one of the things that wasn't, that wasn't playing real well. You know, we're, we're heading down there. I brought my kids with me. My daughter says, I wonder why they planned this on this weekend. It's so cold outside. <laughs> uh, after I'd gotten there, like 20 minutes into being there, I'd had like 30 people ask me, are you sure about this? Is this is a good idea? So when I got there and I was talking with the kids about what we're going to do, I went through a couple of questions. I just wanted, you know, hey, here's some questions I know you're asking. Number one, is it cold? The answer is yes, it's cold. Uh, number two, is the lake, is the lake heated? <laughs> and the answer is yes, of course, otherwise this would be crazy. Yes, the lake is heated. Uh, uh, number three, uh, how long will I be under? Answer, as long as it takes. Uh, and then that question, are you sure about this? Are you sure about this? And my answer is absolutely, because this is one of the most amazing things that I get to do as a pastor, is to be a part of a baptism this afternoon to, to pray for these kids as, as they come forward to be a part of this, this incredible moment in their, in their life. A, li a little over a week, I get to, uh, to be a part of another moment uh, in a young man's life who I've known since he was about confirmation age. So about sixth grade to, to where he is now, he's about to get married. And as you can imagine, from sixth grade to marriage, you know, there's some changes that happen in the life of someone, right? You know, they grow, they change. Uh, uh, but a couple of weeks ago, he and I were talking about this, this next phase of transition and change in his life. And how he's about to go from a life that he has always lived, the person he has always been, to something he's never been before. He's about to become a married man. 
And, and a married man is different than a single man. The way in which you think, the way in which you speak, the way in which you make decisions in your life are different as a married man than you do uh, than, than as a single man. And in order to become something that he's never been before, he has to leave behind what he's always been. That's part of the challenge. That's part of the transition of, of becoming something brand new. And, and that same type of transition happens when we say yes to Jesus. We become something we've never been before. And in order to become something you've never been before, you have to leave behind who you have always been. It's becoming a whole new creature, a whole new, a whole new creation. It's not, it's not halfway. It's not a little bit. It is... It's, it's becoming a person who sees faith not as a component of life, but faith as the foundation of life. There is no such thing as private faith. Another way of thinking of it is there's no place in my life where Jesus does not belong. There's no place in my life where my faith does not belong. There's no place in the world where Jesus does not belong. There's no conversation that I'm a part of in which Jesus does not belong because I'm now something different than I was before. That's the commitment these kids will make when they come forward today is, is to say this is not just part of my life. I want this to be all of my life. And we struggle with that. Can, can, can we all get in the boat and confess that? That we struggle with that. And I'll give you an example. I, I, sometimes I joke with you about this, about, you know, the pastor comes and uh, you kind of sometimes think the pastor's job is to suck the fun out of the room, right? Because, oh, where's the pastor? We got it. And it is sort of bizarre and confusing as a pastor at times because you get invited into places. You, you get invited into people's lives. And, and what's confusing is you're not quite sure where the boundaries are in that. What part of their life that, that they want you to be a part of and what part that they maybe are a little bit more uncomfortable with. And sometimes it's really clear. Come to the meeting and say the prayer at the beginning. <laughs> but there's not an expectation that there's anything else beyond that. And I mention that to you because I know you live in that same dynamic, don't you? <laughs> It's hard sometimes to figure out, well, where does, where does faith impact with the reality of my life? I heard a pastor say many, many years ago, and at first I thought, that's a little, I don't know, I'm, that, I'm not sure about that. But this was his, his statement. We live in a world where most of us struggle with a higher loyalty to a political ideology than we, than we have a loyalty to the Lord of our life. And I'll just tell you as a pastor, there's truth to that. And you realize it because every once in a while you bump into one of those boundaries and you realize, oh, this is not, this is not the place where they want faith to be mentioned, to be a part of this, this place. And that is part of the enduring legacy, the witness of Dr. King, is he was not willing to, to say that there was a place in the world, there was a place in uh, in, in our culture, there was a place in our dialogue about our future. There was no place, according to Dr. King, where Jesus did not belong. Where the kingdom of God and a discussion of what that might mean did not belong. For Dr. King, here's the second thing. There was no other way but the way of the cross. He wrote, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is, an, it is a descending spiral. Begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy, instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie. 
nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. So it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Words similar to others that are familiar to you. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Love your neighbor. You've heard this. You love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For those who know the history of, of Dr. King's work, you know that throughout his uh, throughout that work, but particularly in the latter half of it, one of the, the tensions that he had to deal with was the disillusionment within the movement that he led. Uh, as those within the movement began to ask the question, is this really going to work? At some point you ask the question, are we going to get where we want to go? Is this going to do what we hope is going to get done? Is, is this going to produce the results that we are hoping to achieve? Or is there a time, is there a moment where we make a decision to change our tactics because what we want to see happen has not yet occurred? And some of you know it was in the latter half of his work that there were other movements started that, uh, that were grown out of that sense of disillusionment, the, the sense that maybe nonviolence didn't work and there was another way that needed to be, uh, that, that the, uh, the movement needed to take because the results, the results were not what they had hoped that they would be. But Dr. King's loyalty to nonviolence was more than something he saw as strategically valuable. It was for him the way of Christ, and it was the way of the cross. He said, I'm sick and tired of violence. I'm tired of shooting. I'm tired of hate. I'm tired of selfishness. I'm tired of evil. I'm not going to use violence no matter what. Dr. King believed that social issues are spiritual issues. And spiritual issues always require a spiritual response. The goal was more than changing laws and systems. The goal was always for him changing the human heart. Again, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Here's the third thing. We can only dream of a better world by facing the nightmares of our broken world. One of the ways that I think that we unintentionally dishonor our heroes is when we remember their celebrations and we forget their struggles. We take their life and we shrink it down to a few mountaintop moments, moments of celebration, moments when everything went right. And we forget that there were lots of moments in between where nothing seemed to go right. 
moments on the mountains are on the mountaintop is what is remembered, but we forget about all of those, uh, all, all that time of life they spent in the valleys. We forget their struggles. Every year we remember Dr. King and we remember the words that he uttered in 63. Hundreds of thousands there in Washington and we, we think about the hope and the inspiration of I still have a dream. Of what that dream looked like, of, of how he inspired those, those thousands to continue the work of, uh, of, of, of the movement for civil rights. And in this picture that he painted of, of holding on to the hope in spite of, in spite of all the, the barriers that they faced. But here's something he said just four years later when he was asked about that speech and what that speech meant, not only for the civil rights movement, but what it meant for him. And he paused and he said, well, it was certainly a high moment. <laughs> he said, but that dream that I had that day has at many points since then turned into a nightmare. That's not the quote that you hear as often from Dr. King because we forget how much of his life was spent in the valley. We forget how difficult it was to be at the center of a movement that was seeking to bring about change, to do it in nonviolent ways, and yet a movement that was often met with a violent response. We forget what it must have been like to be the leader of a movement while also trying to be a father a husband, we forget what it must have been like to, to hope for change and to go day by day, wondering if it would come. We forget what it must have been like to have to daily deal with, how do I live? How do I live with this fear? I heard an interview uh, this past week with uh, one of Dr. King's peers in the SCLC, and he talked about that one of the things that was very clear, particularly in the latter years of Dr. King's life, was, was how frustrated he was with his, his own self, his feeling that he should have been doing more. There was more that should be done. There was more change that he wanted to see happen. And he talked about a particular season uh, in their work after he had come out against the Vietnam War, which again caused great controversy. People who had been with him for years had turned their backs on him. He said, during that season, as I traveled the country with Dr. King and listened to him speak, I began to notice that there was a different cadence in his voice. That as he shared, there were moments when he would just get stuck. There was a pause and it just took him a minute to get back on track. It wasn't immediately evident to everyone else, he said, but for me, who'd been with him this entire time, I, I knew that there was something that wasn't quite right. He talked about that clouded depression that he was in, in that time. But that later on, it, it seemed to pass. And after it had passed, after the, the, uh, the, that, that cadence in his speech was back to normal, he, he asked Dr. King about it. What was it that had changed? What had, what had he been going through? What was it that had gotten him back to where he was before? And he said he replied to me very simply, I had to make peace with death. I had to make peace with death. 
We can only dream of a better world by facing the nightmares of our broken world. And those nightmares were more than just personal struggles for Dr. King. It was also his willingness to see what others did not see, to hear what others struggled to hear, to understand what others had difficulty understanding, to go to those places that no one else wanted to visit, to see the struggle and the hurt and the pain, the, to be in those places with people struggling to make ends meet, to put food on the table, the places in our culture that were in need of healing, the dark places that were in need of light. It reminds me that the voice of the prophets, the uh, the voice of Jeremiah who shares with us this promise that many of us know so well. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. You know that verse. The words of Jeremiah that he speaks to a broken people. People who are living in exile who have lost everything. It's in the nightmare that Jeremiah shares the dream. It's in the brokenness, it's in the despair that the prophets speak of a better day. It reminds me that sometimes my lack of imagination is because my world seems to be going just fine. My lack of imagination is that I look around in my world and I think, well, everything seems to be okay here. And those are moments in my life, just true confession to you. Those are moments in my life where I, I sense Christ coming alongside me and asking this question, David, how big is your world? And who's a part of it? Is it bigger than your home? Is it bigger than those who live on your street? Is it bigger than your neighborhood? Is it bigger than, is it bigger than those that you might see on a regular basis? How big is your world? And would you be willing to come and live in my world? Would you be willing to see the world as I do? To see what I see, to hear what I hear, to understand what I know about the broken world in which you live? How big is your world? Perhaps, perhaps the lack of imagination we see in leaders today and in our conversation today is that we are living in a world that is simply too small. And Christ would ask us to come and live in his world. How might you do that this day? Well, you have some bags in your seats. Uh, bags for Kairos Prison Ministry, uh, an opportunity for you to participate in blessing inmates. It's one of the ways you begin to live in a bigger world. You see the forgotten. You remember the, uh, those who, who are hurting. You, uh, you pay attention to, to needs that maybe we don't know are there. You take a Saturday with us and you go to Fort Worth to participate in Feed by Grace Homeless Ministry. You go to a part of the city that you may pass every single day on a highway, but you never stop. You spend time with people who are a part of a different community and you listen to their stories. You listen not only to, to, to hear their experience, but you listen to hear, you listen to hear 
God's response to that, the way that might challenge you, the way that it might lead you to respond in grace. You practice what the scriptures say, that we should be slow to speak and slow to become angry, but, but quick to listen. You recognize that the dream, the dream is based on our willingness to see the brokenness, the brokenness that is all around us. And so on this anniversary, as we remember a modern saint, I want to challenge you, I want to challenge myself to think about the faith that we live, faith that is public, that there's no place in my life or your life or our world where Jesus does not belong. There's no other way but the way of the cross. And we as people of faith, we are called to dream, to dream of a better world, the better world that God is calling us to build. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for, for those who in their devotion to you have made such a dramatic impact on our world. We are grateful for their life and their leadership. And also, Lord, we confess sometimes intimidated by that. For we wonder what that might look like in our own life how there could ever be anything in us that someone would see as similar to them. And yet we know that's the challenge of faith. That's the challenge that you do not want to make any easier for us. And so by your spirit, Lord, we pray that you would cultivate in us courage, confidence, conviction of our faith, and that, Lord, you would also stir in us the humility, the grace, the patience to live that faith well. And as we dream, Lord, as we think about your better world, may we also be people who have eyes to see and ears to hear, who are aware of the great need that surrounds us every day. In celebration of the life of your saint, we lift this prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen.